looked at the Lord's Prayer in Luke. It's the shorter version, but it was a different occasion for teaching. And so the first one was uh, in the Sermon on the Mount area of teaching. And this was later on, months and months later in his teaching. And we say, well, they're very similar. Yeah, because it was the same teacher teaching the same subject. So yeah, they would be similar. This text, though, makes me feel a little uncomfortable, to be honest. And I think you'll understand that when we get to the end. But before that, I want us to talk about prayer in general. Have you ever given serious consideration to why we pray? I'm sure that you have. Do our prayers inform God of what we need? Well, no, they don't. And we know that because, you know, we aren't informing God of anything that he doesn't already know because he already knows everything. Matthew 6, 8 says, do not be like them. Jesus is teaching about uh, the Pharisees that go on and on in their prayers. And he says, do not like, be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. There's a great uh, author and pastor named A.W. Pink of the past who wrote this wonderful book on the sovereignty of God. And he said, prayer is not designed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need, but it is designed as a confession to him of our sense of need. So we are to tell God what we need. And although he won't learn from us, thank God he will listen to us. So next question, do our prayers change God's mind? Well, I'm going to say absolutely no, they do not. For instance, if we all got together and prayed that Jesus would not come again, that'd be a crazy thing for Christians to pray. But as an example, uh, would that prayer be answered? No, because God has decreed that Jesus will come again. We could get together with good intentions and pray that our universalist friends are correct in their teaching and say, God, I just think everybody should go to heaven. We're going to pray about that and we're going to fast about that and we're going to really hope that God listens. Is he going to listen to that prayer? No, because it goes against what he has decided is just and what he has unchangingly decreed. So our prayers do not change God's mind. Well, if, you, if that's the answer, and that's the correct answer, then the next question is, do our prayers change anything? Absolutely, yes, they do. Um, in Exodus 32, after the golden calf incident, God was talking to Moses, and he said, hey, I'm just going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you, <laughs> okay? Now, was that an idle threat? I'm telling you, it was not an idle threat. God was going to destroy all of the Israelites except Moses, and he was going to start over with him. Well, but then Moses prayed and said, God, please don't do that for your own glory and for your own honor. Please don't do that. Forgive them. And God said, okay. Now, did God change his mind? Well, no, the circumstances changed, okay? When we think about Nineveh, he was going to destroy Nineveh. And Jonah went and preached repentance to Nineveh, and Nineveh repented. So did God change his mind about destroying them? No, the circumstances changed. And so he didn't carry out the judgment that he was going to. So prayer does make a lot of difference. We can't change God's mind on his eternal purposes and decrees, but we can change circumstances through prayer. 
Now, I said that God doesn't change his mind, but that circumstances changed. And we need to keep that in mind as we talk about prayer, because the Bible tells us that prayer does matter and prayer does change things. Look with me at a couple of verses. James 4, 2 says this, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now listen to this part. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, if you will change the circumstance of not asking to the circumstance of asking, then God will give you what you're asking for. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the Bible tells us clearly that God is immutable and unchangeable and will not change his eternal decrees. But it also teaches us that prayer can and does change real things around us. Now, sometimes I hear the question about prayer phrased this way. God is going to do what's right anyway, so why pray? Well, because God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish through the means of the prayer of the saints. All right, we have asked God to give us relief from this COVID pandemic. He has chosen to give us relief through the means of a vaccination, right? He didn't have to, but he chose to do it that way. So God uses means very often to accomplish his goals and the means that he uses to accomplish a lot of things in our life, in our church, and in our families is the prayers of the saints. So let me say that again to make sure we understand. One of the ways God accomplishes his will is through our prayers. So we really need to know how to pray. Now last week we learned about a skeleton or a foundation or a framework for prayer. And we talked about that pretty thoroughly about the the framework on which we should build our prayers. This week we'll learn with what attitude and determination we should pray. And uh, this is kind of, you know, I've read this a dozen times. I've read Old Testament stuff that alludes to it. But it hit home for me this week in a way that it has not before. So let's pray together that I'll be able to convey this. Lord, we do pray. Uh, for your spirit to come and teach. Father, you have taught me uh, some stuff I didn't know about prayer. I've been praying for a long time. I've been reading your word for a long time. And yet I feel like I've had some, uh, some revelation regarding prayer this week. Lord, don't, don't let it stop with me. Please teach us all as we look into your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look together at our passage in Luke 11, 5 through 13. And he said to them, now this is immediately following what we looked at last week. So the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. And he said, okay. And he gave us the passage we looked at last week, which is a condensed form of the Lord's Prayer. And then he's still talking on the heels of that. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now Jesus starts off with a little story to illustrate the point. And as far as we know, Jesus didn't go around telling jokes. But I think we can see some of His humor here in the story because it's kind of funny. And uh, so he tells this funny story about hospitality. Now, hospitality was a big deal to the Jews. It was a big deal culturally. It was a big deal religiously because the Old Testament has a lot to say about how you treat a stranger or a traveler. They were commanded in the Old Testament to show hospitality. So in this story, what happens is a guy comes and he's been on a long journey and it's hot a lot of times in the Middle East. And so travelers would travel sometimes at night to stay out of the heat. And so this guy arrives at midnight. And the host, wanting to be a good host, wants to feed him. But he doesn't have any food. So he goes to his neighbor and starts banging on the door, waking everybody up. And he says, would you lend me three loaves of bread? Now, you got to wonder, how many sandwiches did this dude need? But he's not talking about three big old loaves of bread. He's talking about like three little pieces of flat bread is more like what he was asking for. And so that would be a good, uh, good thing to refresh this traveler. Now, you know, the guy in the house has got to be thinking, dude, just tell him to go to bed and give him breakfast in the morning. But he doesn't want to answer the door because he's being bothered at midnight. I don't know about you, but I like my neighbors a whole lot more during the daytime than I would like them coming and knocking at midnight. If you knocked on my door at midnight, I would answer with a gun in my pocket because I would wonder who in the world was there. So this story is kind of funny, and in verse 5 it says, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? Now midnight was later (laughs) than we think of midnight, because we'll stay up till 10 or 11 o'clock. But if you didn't have any electric lights, you wouldn't be staying up till 10 or 11 o'clock. So these folks had been in bed for a long time. It's actually close to the middle of the night, because they're going to get up at 6 in the morning when it It's daylight and start working. So in the middle of the night, this guy comes and he says, friend, lend me three loaves. I guess he was trying to soften the irritation by calling him friend. But anyway, so this joker is waking me up and my whole family for a midnight snack is what this guy's thinking. You know, he's like, uh, if your neighbor came over and rang the doorbell at midnight and said, hey, man, can you lend me a couple of Pop-Tarts? You know, you wouldn't be very friendly toward that neighbor, would you? I have a very senior adult sweet lady that is, is next door to me, and if she came over at midnight and asked me for some Pop-Tarts, I'd be thinking that she had had some kind of mental crisis. You know, that's just not, not what you do. Verse 6 says, For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So really, this wasn't selfishly motivated. He was trying to be a good host, and his desire to be a good host apparently sort of overcame his desire to be a good neighbor. And uh, like I said, he didn't want to make the guy just wait for breakfast. Apparently the neighbor thought he ought to do that because the way the neighbor answered him was he said, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So not only is he waking this guy up, he's waking the whole family up. And I don't know how, uh, how young these children 
where it's a made-up story, so there weren't really children. But I'm just saying, if you get your little kids asleep, you don't want anybody knocking on the door because that's going to really irritate you. So Jesus skips any, any other further dialogue that could have been there. But we see that he keeps pestering this neighbor because he doesn't go away. And then in verse 8, it says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So the neighbor is like, no, dude, go away. And I don't like you enough to get up and give you a midnight snack. But he keeps knocking. And so eventually the neighbor goes, well, I'm not going to get any sleep anyway. So I guess I got to get up and give this guy what he wants. The neighbor's friendship did not compel him to help. uh, But... The guy's annoyance and persistence compelled him to help. The neighbor may have been a nice guy, but the guy in the story here was just pushing the boundaries, right, of what what you're going to put up with. So what does compel him to answer? It's not his love for his neighbor. It's the constant knocking and the seeking and the asking and the beating on the door. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, let me ask you a question, and I want you to actually answer me here. If some of you have your Bibles with you, in, uh, in that verse, mine says, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise. Do any of you have a different word there than impudence? What you got? Persistence. Persistence that's good. What else? Okay, persistence is a good word. Uh, it's not strong enough, though. Uh, the, the King James, I believe, says uh, importunity, which is a great word that means the right thing. But, you know, who of us have used that word in the past five years? Probably nobody. So I don't talk a lot about Greek or Hebrew words because I don't want to bother you. But we need to understand this word. We need to understand what it means. It's translated impudence. And it means a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Insolence. Audacity, impudence, shamelessness, shamelessness, shameless audacity would be a good thing to put here. The part of this text that makes me uncomfortable is this part. Jesus is telling us to approach the father like this neighbor approaches his neighbor with impudence with insolence, with audacity, with shameless determination. Now, I did not say disrespect, nor would I ever, but with an insolence that is verging on improper. Those words uh, seem to verge on disrespectful, don't they? And yet this is how Jesus is telling us to approach the Father in prayer. And when I read this, I thought, man, I don't understand this. So I studied it, and I studied it, and I studied it, and I do understand it, I think. And it is that we are to get after God in our prayers. You know the story in the Old Testament where Jacob wrestles with with God, and he won't let him go? And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, and God dislocates his hip. It makes more sense after the teaching that Jesus is telling us right here. I mean, it takes, you know what we sang. What we sang earlier was so magnifying about God and His greatness. That is where I am completely comfortable. I love talking about the glory and the magnificence of God. 
When you get to talking about the audacity to hold on to him and say, I'm not going to let you go until you give me this. That seems a little bit, uh, a little bit too shameless for me. But yet it's what Jesus is teaching us that we're supposed to do in prayer. Now, I'm not telling you to pray with disrespect, but I am telling you that Jesus says here that we should pray with an audacity that is foreign to most of us or maybe all of us. Now, how do we know that Jesus is telling us to be this way? Well, it's implied. Otherwise, why would he tell the story? But then in case we don't understand, he goes on and clarifies in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And the way this is written, it says, and I tell you. And uh, a Greek verb has, has the person already in it. And so the verse before, it says, I tell you, and it's written the normal way. This one says, and I, I tell you. So it's emphasizing the I. So instead of saying, I tell you, Jesus is saying, I tell you, knock and seek. So Jesus is telling us to be determined in the way we pray. Jesus wants us to know that the attitude we should have in prayer is one of relentless insistence. That's just weird to me because the Bible says God knows what you need before you ask him. Yet he wants you to pursue him like this. In verse 10, it says, for everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open to him. Some people see verse 9 and 10 as a blank check that they can claim. They can, they can say, okay, I'm going to seek and knock and ask for a new Cadillac. Well, that's not what he's saying, obviously, because it comes on the heels of what we studied last week. It comes on the heels of the Lord's Prayer. If they had bothered reading last week's passage, they wouldn't get the misunderstanding that this is a blank check. Last week we learned that we are to pray for God's name to be treated and revered as holy. That's one of the things we are to pursue God about. We are to pray for God's kingdom to come. We're to pray for our daily bread, not a new Cadillac, but our daily bread. We're to pray for forgiveness as we extend forgiveness to others. And we're to pray for deliverance from temptation. When we're praying for those things, we are to pray for them with an insistency that is probably uh, not common to our prayers. Regarding those things, we should be confident, persistent, and bold when we pray. If what you are asking for advances the kingdom and glorifies God, then pray like Jesus is telling us to here. In the next section, Jesus uses this rhetorical method that was common to Jewish teachers. He would start with a, a lesser example and move on to a greater example to point out the obvious truth of what he was saying. And so in verses 11 through 12, he says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? All right, so any decent father is not going to do that, right? Your little kid comes up and says, I want an egg. And you're like, oh, suck on this. And you throw him a scorpion, right? You're not going to do that to the kid because that would harm him. It would make fun of his hunger. It would be just a horrible thing to do. Now, a father won't do that. I got to tell you, a brother might, though. When I was a little kid, 
<laughs> I was, uh, I, w- I would come and pester people for food like little kids do. And so my brother set me up. He made this peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he soaked the corner of it in Tabasco sauce in preparation for me as a small little innocent child coming up and asking for a bite of his food. So uh, anyway, a father won't treat you like this, but man, a brother will. So uh, a father won't give his son a snake if he asks for a fish or a scorpion if he asks for an egg. So Jesus goes on to say, hey, look, if, if you guys who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is a little bit of a weird lack of parallelism. He says, if you ask for good stuff, you expect him to say, if you've got enough sense to give your kids good stuff, then your Father in Heaven will give you good stuff. But he doesn't say that. He says, if you will give your son good stuff, then your Father in Heaven will give you the Holy Spirit. Another place where Jesus teaches this, he says what you'd expect him to say. Over in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, it's the same subject, and he's teaching on it again. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one uh, who knocks, it will be opened to him. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? So same kind of teaching, same sermon here. He's given the same point to the people. And then in this time, though, he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So that makes sense. He says, You being evil know how to give good gifts. God your Father will give good gifts to you. But in our passage, it doesn't say that. He, he, he loses that parallelism. And I want us to think about why that is. Verse 13 says of Luke, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to you? So why is it that instead of good gifts and good gifts, he goes good gifts and Holy Spirit? What do you ask for when you pray? Do you ask for help? Well, God will answer by giving you the helper. Do you ask for wisdom? Then he gives you the spirit of wisdom. Do you ask for guidance? Then he'll give you the guide. Do you ask for help in a relationship? He gives you the spirit of peace. Do you pray to be closer to God? He puts his spirit within you. This is an even greater explanation of the richness of God's gift to you than the other passage is. He's not saying, I'll just give good stuff to you. I'll give you all there is. If Gabe came up to me and said, hey, can I have 10 bucks? And I said, no, but let me give you my checks and let me give you all the credit cards we have. I mean, that's kind of like what this answer is. (laughs) He's saying, do you give good gifts? No, not just good gifts. I give the source of the gifts. Now, the problem with that illustration is there's not a whole lot in the bank and the credit cards have a maximum limit, unlike with God. So God's not saying, hey, I'm going to give you a good gift. He's saying, I'm going to give you the supplier of the good gifts. I'm going to give you, you want five bucks? I'm going to give you the whole bank. So he's saying that not only do we get the good gift, we get the one who supplies the good gifts. 
He's not just giving us the good things, but the source of the good things. Now, I'm not saying that if you want to hear from God and are too stubborn to read the Word, that the Spirit will help you with that. (laughs) But I am saying that when the Spirit, when you ask God for things, like if you ask God for wisdom and then you refuse to read the Word, well, that's where wisdom is contained. Now, I don't think the Holy Spirit will bless that because that's just crazy, right? He's saying, man, I gave it to you. It's right there. Pick it up and read it. If you want fellowship and closeness and encouragement, and then you refuse to come to church, then I think you'd be asking for something that the Holy Spirit would say, man, I've already supplied that. There's a way this is supposed to happen. You're supposed to get in the church and fellowship with the church. So let's not ask for things that are, are silly that we've already been provided. Now, I'm, I ask for wisdom all the time, but I ask for wisdom while I read the Word and search out the wisdom of the Word, right? I'm, I'm doing what I can to be supplied and then I ask for more. I think God's honored by that. But if we were to go to Him and say, you know, I want wisdom, but I don't want you to give it to me the way that you have determined to give it to me, through reading the scriptures, I want you to just impart wisdom to me magically that I don't have to work for. It's probably not going to answer that prayer. If you say, I'm lonely and I need, I need some friendships, I need some relationships, but I don't like church people because there are hypocrites in there, then yeah, I don't think he's going to magically supply your needs there because you refuse to go through the means that he has already given us to secure those relationships. So we are to pray... If it's something Jesus would approve of, we are to pray with boldness and determination. And I want to encourage you by giving you some Old Testament examples of this. I want to see if any of you have ever prayed like this. Psalm 55, 1 through 2 says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea of mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. All right, so have any of you ever gone to God and said, God, all right, listen to me. I'm talking to you. Now don't go hiding somewhere. Pay attention to me and answer me. Yet that is the way the psalmist is praying. In Psalm 102, 1 and, uh, 1 and 2, it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Again, who, who among us has gone to God and said, God, I'm talking to you. Listen, listen, don't hide. Listen and answer me and answer me quickly. Probably not many of us. That seems a little too audacious to me, doesn't it to you? And yet Jesus is saying because of that audacity, the neighbor would get up and answer the door and give the guy the bread. And he's teaching us to pray that way. It's not just the Psalms that we find this kind of thing. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 6, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, So he is honoring God, but he's also bold. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And so he's saying, look, I'm coming to you and I want you to hear me. 
and I'm confessing our sins, but you've got to pay attention to me because I'm coming to you day and night. And we're going to talk about the state that Israel is in. And he's determined to be answered. Psalm 143, 1 and 2 adds another uh, thing that I thought was funny. It says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. <laughs> so he says, Hey God, pay attention to me. Answer me. Look, we got to talk about this. And don't, don't, uh, you know, don't hold my sin against me because we got to talk about this. So he's coming to God and demanding an audience, demanding an answer. But he's doing it with great respect and love. And this is David, too. So if you have the proper respect and fear of God, what could embolden you to pray this way? See, that's, that's why I don't pray this way. That's why I don't pray this uh, aggressively, is because of my fear and my reverence for God. And I don't want to diminish that. You need to keep, that, keep all of the fear and reverence of God that you can possibly get a hold of. Understand who God is, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But what will give you this kind of boldness, to be honest, is desperation. Desperation will drive you to this kind of prayer. Is there anything you need desperately from God? How about the salvation of someone you love? That can become a desperate need for you. And you can pray like this. How about the salvation of a lost neighbor? How about the health and well-being of the church? How about the success of a church plant? If you become desperate for those things, you can come to God and knock and knock and keep on knocking until he answers. Now there are some reasons why God doesn't answer prayer that are clearly laid out in Scripture. You may be withholding forgiveness to someone else. Last week we talked about that. He says, and forgive our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So Jesus taught us to pray in a way that said, forgive us like we forgive other people. So if you're not forgiving other people, it's certainly not uh, confusing why you are not getting your prayers answered. You may be praying outside of God's will. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now you may be praying with wrong motives. James 4.3 tells us you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You may have unconfessed sin, and that's why he's not answering you. If I had cherished iniquity, this is Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now here's one that's going to get a bunch of us. You may not be reading the word. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, how are his words going to abide in you if you don't take them in? Right? You've got to read his words. You've got to get his words into your head before they can abide in you. And then you can pray and have your prayers answered. You may be treating your spouse badly. 1 Peter 3 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but pay attention because if we want our prayers answered, and there's going to come a day when you're, the, the thing you want more than anything else in the world is for your prayers to be answered. If you find out that your spouse or one of your children is not a believer, that is going to be the number one prayer in your life until they become a believer. You're going to be desperate for God to answer you. And you don't want any of these little things in the way of hearing back from God. Another reason God may not hear and answer prayer is that a whole lot of people praying to him are not believers. Guys, I see on Facebook and other social media all the time, folks that I know have no relationship to God, no relationship to the church, who are saying, pray for me, and I'm praying about this, and I'm praying about that. We as Americans, a lot of time, think uh, God is like a genie or a, or a bellhop. We can, <laughs> we can come to him when we need something, and we can ask him, and he's there to serve us. I mean, we've got cows that are there to give us milk. We've got chickens that are there to give us eggs. We've got God that's there to answer our prayers, and we approach him that way. But let me tell you, if you're not his, then there's only one prayer he's going to hear from you, and that is the prayer of repentance and faith. So let me tell you how to become his. Guys, we've rebelled against him. We've sinned personally. Uh, you know, David said in, that he was conceived in sin. And he didn't mean that his mother had some illicit affair. He means that from the womb he knew how to sin. Sin was part of his nature. You don't have to teach little kids how to sin. They pick it up all on their own, right? You have to teach them how not to sin. And so we have a problem. We are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. Not that if we sin, then we become a sinner. It's that we're born that way and we act that way. We're in rebellion to God until he changes who we are. And guys, I was praying while we were singing earlier uh, that the Holy Spirit would, would just fill this place to where we could understand how to pray respectfully and reverently, yet with a kind of tenacity that Jesus tells us to pray with. And another thing I prayed for is if there's anyone here who doesn't understand the gospel, that they would come to understand it today. So let me tell you what it is. In our rebellion, God sent his son to live the perfect life we couldn't live. We, we were supposed to live according to God's rules and regulations and will. We didn't do it. So Jesus did it for us. And then he died for us to pay the penalty for the sins we committed. And so if we will come to him in repentance and faith, what he'll do is he'll take Christ's life of righteousness and credit that to your account and your record of sin and rebellion and credit that to Christ's account, which he paid for on the cross. And then you can be reconciled to God. So if you've never done that, I pray that you would do it today. You don't have to come up here and talk to me, but I would love to further explain the gospel to you if you're one of those folks to say, I'm not sure I've done that. Also, if you need to be baptized, come and talk to me. If you want to join this church, come and talk to me, and I'll tell you about the process. But one other thing, guys, um, if there's something I could magically change today, it would be that we would all be in the Word every single day. So if I could influence you to realize that Jesus said, hey, if my words abide in you, ask whatever you want. Guys, listen to that. Think about that. 
and start putting God's word into you so that it can abide in you so that your prayers won't be hampered, okay? So if you would, come, if you would like to come up and say, I'm not reading the word, how, how should I start? I would love to have that conversation with you. Guys, there are apps that make it idiot-proof. You go to that day and you read what it tells you to read. And then the next day you go to the next day on the app. It's, I'm telling you, it's so easy. If you're like, well, I don't see well, that's okay. It'll read to you. Uh, it, you know, just there's no excuse these days for not taking in the word. But there's so many of us that don't. So let me encourage you as much as possible to daily get in the word. All right, brother, come sing for us and with us.